right, well, let's pray together one more time as we uh, open the word of the Lord together. Father, we do thank you so much for the joy that we have of coming together, the joy that we have of gathering, the joy that we have of considering your word together. And I just pray, Lord, that you would speak. Lord, speak by what you've written in your word. Speak by your spirit. Those things, those individual things that we need to put into alignment with you. Instruct us, I pray. God, we need you. I need you. I pray that you would help us understand you and your word more fully. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine recommended that I listen to a podcast. And uh, he said it would, it would challenge me. He said it would help me. I was like, okay, I'm always willing to learn, always interested in, in gaining a better, bigger perspective. So I checked out a few episodes of this podcast. And no, I'm not going to tell you the name of the podcast or the friend, all that kind of stuff. It's all secret. But so I did. I listened to several episodes of this podcast and uh, I did find it challenging. And then I also found it a bit disturbing. There was one time when the host of the show, the host of this podcast, invited a guest and he would do that from time to time, as many of these podcast people do. He invited a guest and this guest happened to be a comedian. But he wasn't just any comedian. He was a comedian who had traveled around with uh, another very famous Christian speaker. And this comedian, while he did a lot of funny stuff from the stage, was really trying to take his spiritual life seriously, which I appreciated. I was, you know, sometimes it's hard to know when you you watch comedians what to take seriously and, and what they're just joking around about. Well, he was serious about his faith. But he was admittedly agnostic. He doubted whether or not God existed. And and if he did exist, whether or not God would have any interaction with us as people. And so he he mentioned sometime during this podcast episode, he said, he said these words. He said, I am Christ leaning. I am Christ leaning. I'm thinking, what, what do you mean by that? And essentially, as I listened more and more to this episode, I began to understand some of the double speak that I was hearing certain people say. You see, people could say something that sounds like, oh, yeah, he's a Christian. But for real, really what he's saying is, I'm not a Christian. I'm leaning toward the ideas that I like in Christ and leaning away from the things in Scripture that I don't like. So he's kind of trying to have his cake and eat it too, as it were. He believed that Jesus was a real person. And, and he, for him, he believed that the spirit of Christ, the anointed one of God, rested on Jesus for a time. And then went away and rested on someone else. And then on someone else. And that we can all now tap into the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God's anointing, however that is. You see, being Christ-leaning, he could accept or reject anything he wanted from Scripture. He could lean toward the things that he liked and lean away from the things he didn't like. He did not believe in the sacrificial atoning death of Jesus. He did believe in Jesus' example of love and selfishness. 
But in thinking about this, you know, it's in my ears, I'm thinking, wow, that sounds new. And then I got to thinking as I was studying Second John this week, I think Solomon said it well in Ecclesiastes 1.9, there is nothing new under the sun. And there's nothing new in this case because the deception that this man believes today is similar to the deception that first century people were encountering and around which John was writing his letter. And so if you have your copy of God's word and would like to open to the book of second John, uh, let me encourage you to do that. There won't really be any slides. In fact, the one slide that you have in front of you now is the only slide you're going to get. And that's in part because I was at MPUs all week, which is why I'm wearing this shirt. If you're visiting, I don't normally dress like this. Um, but we, we were at, away with the kids, with the teenagers, actually all middle schoolers, uh, at Empuge this weekend. So we're gonna, I'm, talking, I'm gonna talk briefly about it. But if you have your copy of God's Word, open to Second John. If you don't know where that is, start in Revelation. Flip forward a book to Jude, flip forward a page to Third John, and another page to Second John. If you go too many pages, you're going to miss it altogether because it's only 13 verses long. But today as we look at Second John, we're going to read the entirety of Second John together over the course of, of our time together. And we're going to really look at it as a means of, of, of understanding all 13 verses and really what John is, is discussing. We're going to kind of look at it almost devotionally. We'll read a few verses and I'll talk about it, read a few more and I'll talk about it. So this massive book of 13 verses is before us. And, and let's begin at the beginning. We heard um, Brian read a bit of this earlier, but Second John verses 1 through 3 in the ESV says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because, the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace Mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. And so, you know, normal first century letters would have this kind of opening. It would have an, we'd, we'd find out who the author is. In this case, he's known as the elder. We, we understand the elder to be John the Apostle. We get to find out who the audience is. And he says, elect lady. Well, who in the world is this elect lady? Some people think that this elect woman was an individual woman, a mother with multiple kids. And she was a Christian, a follower of Christ, and may have had a church in her house. Other people have thought that this was just a way of referring to a church. And that's most likely what it is, that he's using that phrase, elect lady, to refer to a specific church of people. And part of the reason commentators think that is because the, you know, we lose this in English, but in Greek, John very quickly moves from singular talking about this woman, you as this woman to plural. And of course, in English, the plural of you is you, unless you're from the South and then you get y'all or all y'all, right? So, and, and the ESV doesn't, doesn't do the Southern thing. So we just get you so a lot of commentators really think that this is written to a church. And, and, but I think that there are places where we can apply this both looking at it individually and looking at it as a, a church, a group of people. Because if you think about it, the church is considered the bride of Christ. And so you have 
the bride of Christ at Poolsville. You have the bride of Christ in Rockville, the bride of Christ in Thessalonica, the bride of Christ here. But there's another thing. I don't know if you picked up on this and what, what Brian read or what was in here. And that there are two words that jump out a lot in these first five verses. One is truth and the other is love. In fact, truth shows up five times in the first four verses and love shows up four times um, all in the first six verses. And so I, I bring that out because, you know, when I'm reading scripture and I see things repeated over and over again, it kind of makes me think, OK, Joel, there's something you need to get in your head, because obviously there's something the author something that God wants us to understand in this. So the question really becomes, what is this truth? That Greek word that, that John uses here is the word aletheia, which means the content of that which is true, thus in accordance with what actually happened. And so John doesn't specifically describe or define the truth that he's talking about. Because you know, if you think about it, in our day, we like to think of things as truth as being personal. Truth is relative for us today, for so many people, for our society. Your truth and there's my truth. Well, what is true truth? And so I think John is really trying to help his readers get to, I'm writing to you so that you will know the truth. That you will be established in this. So here's some things in these first few verses that we can glean about what John is talking about in this truth. You see, the truth is it defines the genuineness of John's love for these people. I, I love you in truth or I truly love you. His love for them is more than just sentiment. His love for them is verifiable. But also, truth is a common element among John and the others who love this elect lady, who love this church. It's almost as though, you know, you and I, we have this, this bond, this fellowship because of Jesus Christ. If you become a follower of Christ, you know that we are a part of the family of God. And we sang about it. They should know we are, others should know we are Christians by our love for one another. Jesus challenges, challenged us with that. But there's this unique bond that we have. If we were to travel next year with, with Andrew and his family to Kenya, and we were to visit the churches that he grew up in, the churches that, that their family attends, we would find that we have this genuine, this true bond because of Jesus Christ. We can have this genuine love because we are family. We might not, ever, we might not have met them yet, but we are family. And so it's this common element, this truth, is what John is, is a, a common factor among all believers, especially the believers that he's referring to. Also, we see in Second in John 2 that um, the truth is in us. There is something about this truth that resides in us. And yet this truth is also persistent. It will be with us forever. Look at what it says in verse 2. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. But also we see that the grace, mercy, and peace that we receive from God is established in truth and in love. But it's established in truth. And finally, we see in verse 4 that truth is something that genuine believers walk in or, identi or it identifies our faith. A little bit later, we can glean from John's letter about this. But, but I want us to ask, what is this truth really? Is it subjective? Is it an opinion? 
Well, if it's an opinion, is it really truth? In fact, Pilate asked that question uh, when he was uh, interviewing Jesus or, or questioning him. He says, what is truth? Well, here's how Jesus talked about that. In, in John's gospel, John eighteen thirty six to 37, Jesus says, uh, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. And then get this, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You see, I think what we have to understand is that for John, when he talks about truth, truth is rooted in Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, in who he is and what he accomplished in the world, his work. And based on some of the things that John warns the readers about later in the letter, I think the truth that John refers to here is not only a genuineness or an honesty, but the physical advent of Jesus in the flesh. Skip down to verse 7. We're going to get get down to this in just a minute. But look at what John says here in verse 7. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. You see, one of the things that John is fighting is some people who are saying, no, Jesus never came. He wasn't a real person. He's the spirit. It's that that idea of the spirit of Christ. And John is saying, no, we believe that Jesus came in the flesh. And we believe our our salvation is based on the fact that we have this God-man 100% 100% God, 100% man who was able to live a perfect life to be that full payment for our sin. You see, I think Christianity is filled with mystery. There is a lot that we do have to take on faith. But Christianity is not illogical. There is an element to faith in what we believe, but Christianity is also, it is founded in truth. It is founded in historical fact. It is established in the physical incarnation of God the Son, taking on human flesh, coming into this world to be like us. I think John would, in this truth, would help have us recognize that Jesus was truly born. He truly lived. He truly died on the cross. He truly rose from the grave. He truly ascended and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, our belief in Jesus is not a mystical belief in an idea or a concept, but belief in a person who existed physically on this earth and still exists in heaven. He was born a unique birth, fully human and yet fully God. He lived a perfect life. And he died a death he did not deserve. And I think faith kind of comes into play when we consider, well, why did he die? Why did Jesus come? Why did he rise from the grave? And again, in John's gospel, John helps us understand this a bit more. He says, but these are written in John 20, 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ 
the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. He did it so that we might have life, so that we might have eternal life. But let's continue walking through the letter. Look at verse 4. John writes to this woman, to this elect lady or to this church. He said, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as, it, just as we were commanded by the Father. And here, John is using this singular tense of the word you and your. And it seems like he's referring, if he's referring to the church, he's referring to that body of believers. We are one church. So he would refer to us as a, a singular entity. And the individual children are the individuals of that congregation, which sort of begs the question, what does it mean for us to walk in truth? He says, I rejoice to find that some of your children were walking in the truth. Well, let me, let's just think about it for a quick moment, looking broadly at other religions. In the Muslim world, when a child is born into a Muslim family, typically the father will come to the son and whisper in his right ear. He'll say, he'll say in, in Arabic, usually, he'll say, God is great. There is no God but Allah. Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. That's the prayer. When, when you've heard them call to prayer, that's essentially what they're saying. God is saying, come and pray. But what they believe is that by saying it into the right ear of every child, that child is then a Muslim life. They are sealed in that way. Whether or not they continue to follow Islam, it's in that moment that they say, you're, you're, you're a Muslim. And so that's why they do it early on. As Christians, some, in some traditions, uh, some traditions of, of Christianity, we, they baptize children, taking the parents' faith as a sign of covenant and sprinkling water on children as, a, as that idea of now I'm in this, as a parent, I'm in this covenant with God and I'm going to cover in that covenant my child until such a time that, as they believe. And so then they're, they're very intentional about teaching or instructing or catechizing, as it were, their children, which is in some ways why we're doing this stuff with the New City Catechism. But they train their children and train them question and answer and question and answer. They'll walk through things like the Westminster Catechism. And at some point in time, children get to the end of this catechism period and they have a time of confirmation where, it, where the church then confirms, sometimes with a celebration, sometimes with just a graduation, you've been confirmed. We believe that you now have the faith that your parents imputed to you as a child. It is yours and you own it. I certainly do appreciate the systematic and intentional approach that those traditions have in making sure faith is passed along from one generation to the next. But for many Baptistic churches like ours, parents may or may not do a baby dedication. In fact, let me ask you guys, how many of you have done dedications with your children? Okay. Do you remember if any of you, you probably don't, were any of you dedicated as a child? Or is that kind of, okay, a few, all right. I don't remember if I was. I was too small. Um, but we did do the dedication thing. But what's interesting, it's sort of like the Baptistic baptism, pedo-baptism, baptism. And it's really not so much us uh, dedicating our child, 
but dedicating parents to raise our children in the Lord, to raise them in the admonition of the Lord and in, in Scripture. And so we do that and we, we seek to educate our kids and we bring them to Sunday school and we hope that they understand it. And at some point in time, the Spirit of God is going to call them out and say, I want you to be a follower of Christ. And so at some point in time, children respond to the Lord. And once they respond, we believe that that is the time the church gets to confirm, yes, we see evidence of Christ in you. So that's when we baptize. So we believe in, in a believer's baptism. And then there's this daily walk in truth, this daily activity it, that, that you're, you're submitting your life to Christ on a daily basis. But there are many people today who would call themselves Christians, some because they were baptized as a child and maybe they were never confirmed, but maybe they faked their way through confirmation and catechism. Or maybe they just have gone to church and I'm not convinced by scripture that those people are truly Christians if they're just going through the motions because our faith our belief in truth is a belief that is individually held and yet corporately encouraged and so just because your parents are Christians doesn't make you a Christian just because you've come to church every week or just on Christmas and Easter doesn't make you a Christian. Walking in that truth is a continual process. And so we, our hope is that, and I think what John is saying, saying here is that I see evidence in your children. I see evidence in, in this next generation that they are walking, that they are owning their faith. Whether they were baptized as a child and go through that confirmation or they got baptized after they believed, they're walking in that. But I think it's important that you and I understand that our parents' faith, if our parents were believers at all, our parents' faith, must we must own it ourselves at some point. It must become ours. And so I want to ask you, are you walking in the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Are you daily submitting to the Lord? Are you, or are you kind of riding the coattails of your parents, thinking, well, my parents were good enough, so that should get me into heaven? Right? Steve and I have this joke that he's going to get into heaven by pushing buttons in the back. It's not going to be pushing buttons. It's not going to be your parents' coattails. It's not your attendance at church or Sunday school. The only way that you will have eternal life is to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Then, you will be saved. And the daily walk, to continually walk, to be that light in all the places that God has called you to be, is then this joy that we have in the Christian life. And so I want to ask you again, do you consider yourself a Christian? And if so, why? Is it because you attend church? Is it because you're an American or you live in this supposedly Christian nation? And again, if that's your answer... I. I need to tell you the truth. You are not a follower of Christ. Walking in truth is belief in the truth of who Jesus is, the Son of God, what He did, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross as a replacement, as a full payment for your sin and mine. And then we get to walk in that truth. 
So if you've not yet entrusted your life and the finished work of what Jesus did on the cross, I want to encourage you, let's have a conversation this week. Let's get some coffee or, or, or let's just get together sometime and talk about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And if you've not yet, if you, if you would say, yes, I believe I'm walking in that truth, but I've never been baptized. If that's the next step you need to take, hey, let's have that conversation too. Because I would love for us to fill up this baptistry behind us every month and have people come saying, yes, I am a follower of Christ. And I will gladly publicly profess that I am part of this family. But also being part of this family, John encourages us to walk in love. Look at what it says in verses 5 and 6. He says, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but one that we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. You know, John is known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So it wouldn't be a letter or a book or anything of John unless it had something to do with love in it. And here John uses an interesting, almost circular line of reasoning. He reminds us to obey the commandment that we had at the beginning. And what is that commandment? To love. And if we love, then we're going to obey the commandment. If we're going to obey the commandment, then we're going to love. And it's this whole idea that love should permeate everything we do. In fact, John, I think he's thinking back to what Jesus said in in John chapter 13 in his gospel. He says, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And Jesus said that love would be the identifying marker of his followers. Love for one another, that sacrificial, that abiding, that unconditional love. And we talked about that a bit, a bit last week. Now, I think uh, think about this in light of John's emphasis on truth. So he has truth. We talked about that a little bit and he has love. And I think that, um, you know, we are to be people of truth, people of conviction. But it seems like love is the vehicle by which we display this conviction, by which we hold this truth. You see, I think it's so easy for us to get caught up on doctrine. On, uh, and, and hold things vehemently to defend it. You must not be a follower of Christ if you believe this. And we're not very loving at times when we hold our convictions. So, and I'm not saying that we should be wishy-washy on our convictions. But I'm saying that those convictions should be displayed in love. Let me explain it by talking about this whole idea of baptism. You see, I know there are some of us who, who are here who grew up in churches and traditions where we were baptized as children. Um, I understand where that belief comes from, where that doctrine comes from. I don't think that's the, the a fully biblical way to do it. But I'm not going to question your faith if that's how your parents did that. Because if if we see evidence of that in your life, if we see evidence of you following Christ, you see salvation extends beyond the mode of baptism or the amount of water that was used. 
And so in love, I can hold to the conviction that I have that believer's baptism is the biblical way to go. But in, in love, I can also say, if you were baptized as a child, okay, let's see that fruit. Because I, I got to tell you, there's probably a lot of people who were baptized as believers who are not walking in the truth. You know, oftentimes here I've quoted from a guy named Mark Dever, who's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And he's told, mentioned publicly time and again that he's got two best friends. And these two best friends are both seminary presidents. One of them is a Baptist seminary president. And the other one is a Presbyterian seminary president. And what's so interesting about this is Mark, if you've ever listened to him preach, if you've ever read any of his stuff, he's very adamant. He'll tell you what he thinks and he holds no bones about it. But for instance, his Presbyterian friend, Presbyterians typically baptize their babies and take kids through catechism and confirmation and all that kind of stuff. Devers, one of Devers' best friends is this Presbyterian guy. And they have preached in each other's churches. Now, they typically don't preach on baptism when they go to each other's church. And, and it's so funny. I've heard, heard Dever on different podcasts just blatantly say, you're wrong. Bible says this. You're wrong. But I love you anyways. And it, it's so interesting to watch him. So I... I I say that because I think it's important. One of the things that John is encouraging us to do is have this attitude of love as we hold on to the truth. And I think if we, if we major on the majors, we'll look with a whole lot more grace on the things that may not matter quite as much. What are people doing with Christ? Are they believing in the truth that Jesus came and lived and did what he did what he did so that we might have life. So with this reminder to walk in love, John continues in the next couple of verses by simply saying, watch out again. Look at what it says in John second uh, John seven for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver. And the Antichrist. You see, because of the conflict within the church, conflict similar to what I talked about at the beginning, John um, warns people to look out for those who would deny the physical coming of Jesus Christ. There was this sort of Gnosticism present in the latter part of the first century and the beginning of the second century that essentially believed that all flesh is wicked and all flesh is irrelevant. So if God is spirit, he in their mind, if God is spirit, he would not um, curse his being, his presence by taking on human flesh. And, and I think that what, what John, one of the things John is pointing out is that for people who are denying the humanity of Jesus Christ, they are deceivers. They are preaching and teaching lies. He's saying, watch out for them. And then look at what it says in verses 8 and 9. It says, watch out for yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. You see, for John, abiding in and obeying Jesus' teaching is a vital part of the Christian life. What we believe matters. 
how we live in that matters. And I almost wonder if John was thinking about what Jesus said the night before he was crucified to his disciples in, in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 5 through 8. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. And this brings great glory to my father. Well, as you guys know, this week we, we had our Mfuge trip. We had, there were seven of us, all middle schoolers except for Danielle and me. And um, the theme this week was dwell, which is why I wore this shirt. And one of the, I, I was fascinated by the idea of this theme. Because actually this theme they launched two years ago. It would have been last year's theme, but we didn't get to go through that. And, and they, this week we talked about God being our refuge. God being that source of strength, that source of safety, that protection, that sense of hope. That God is with us. God is Emmanuel. We believe Jesus Christ is that physical manifestation of God being with us. But by his spirit, we all, he is with us now. That God is faithful and that we get to rest in him. We don't have to be anxious about our salvation. We don't have to be anxious about this life because God is in control. And one of the things that, that uh, this, this camp pastor challenged us with is to get into certain habits and rhythms of walking by faith with God. Habits of reading scripture and, and, you know, you may be one of those guys who likes to read through the whole Bible every year. And if you want to, if you're that kind of person, great. I, I've been doing that. I've been reading through the last couple of years, all of it, at least once, sometimes twice. But I don't know if you've ever noticed that sometimes when you're reading huge passages of scripture, it just goes in one eye and out the other. And you're like, what in the world did I read? And so he encouraged us. He said, maybe take some time, read smaller chunks. And then he said, read it again and think about it this way. Read it again. Think about it that way. Read it again. Just let it rest in you. Getting into patterns of of meditating, chewing on the word of God. So in your personal quiet time, do you... Do you take time to really ponder what God is saying? Do you take time to just dwell with God? Or are you racing to get check mark? Oh, let me get to the office. Let me get in the car. Maybe it means getting up a few minutes earlier. Maybe it means if you do it at night, taking a few minutes longer before you shut your eyes to just consider the word of the Lord. He, he challenged us to fast. Admittedly, this is a discipline that I know I don't talk about enough. It's a, it's a discipline I don't do enough. But to deny ourselves something for a season. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's the distraction of electronics. I mean, 
In fact, that was one of the things they brought up. How, how often when your phone buzzes, do you have to go pick it up immediately? Or if you have one of those smartwatch things, is your wrist going off? You're like, oh, what is that? And I'm in the middle of a conversation with somebody. Just let it go. And making time to rest. I think that's something we truly need. I mean, the, Jesus, uh, we were talking with, the, with the, the group this week. When you look at all of our patterns in the world, the calendar year is dictated by our orbit around the sun. The seasons are dictated around the slant of the earth in relation to the sun. And, and, and the, the water levels are dictated by the rotation of the moon around the earth and all that kind of stuff. So months are loosely related to lunar cycles. Less now than it was before. But he said the one thing, as we were talking about this, the one thing that we have that is not related to anything uh, physical, anything astronomical, is our weekly calendar. You know where that got started? In creation. God worked for six days and he rested on one. And he's, we can't find that anywhere in the stars or planets or all that. But God said, have a day of rest. Have a day where you're not trying to earn money or provide for yourself. Have a day where you can just sit and rest. For the Jews, it was Saturdays. For a lot of Christians, it can be Sundays. Just make that time to not be so busy and let God work. That abiding in God, abiding in His teaching. So, you know, let me ask you how are your abiding habits? Are you consistent in your time with God? Are you allowing the word of God to dwell in you richly? I got to tell you, I'm not as much as I should. I mean, I, I read and prepare sermons and, and I you know, work with the teenagers on, you know, on Thursdays for our, our Thursday Sunday school class. But in my personal time, I'm listening to scripture and my mind is going all over the place while I'm walking and I'm not resting. I'm not meditating as much as I should. So let me just ask you to pray for me and feel free to ask, hey, Joel, how's your time dwelling with God? Are you doing more than simply, are you and I doing more than simply just showing up on Sunday or tuning in? You see, I think it's important that we recognize we don't need to earn our salvation, but our Christian life takes effort. It takes work to grow, to be able to defend it against false teaching. And so speaking of false teaching and teachers, John has a very clear and careful admonition. Look at what it says in verses 10 and 11. He says, if, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And I think this teaching is referring about the physical coming of Jesus Christ into the world. The, what Jesus did, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And on one hand, it seems like John might be contradicting his previous statements. I mean, didn't he just say we need to love? And that now he's saying don't welcome them? Well, not welcoming is not very loving. 
And I think what John is getting at here is he's not talking about hospitality. We need to be hospitable. When we see a brother in need, we talked about it last week. If you see someone in need and can help but don't, you're not loving. But in this case, because so many of those early churches met in homes, what he's saying is if someone comes to you and is going to teach you and you welcome them in as a speaker, it would be almost like if, if we had someone come to this pulpit and preach and teach something that was against scripture he's basically saying you need to not even let them darken the door of the church put them away we need to be careful about who comes to preach and teach and i think for us we need to be careful about who we're listening to like that podcast that i told you about earlier that that friend of mine encouraged me to listen to Part of the reason I'm not going to say its name, uh, part of it, I can't remember the name really well, but I don't want to commit because I don't think that person is teaching truth. I, I can learn it, but I can, it's just, we need to guard what goes in our ears and what goes in our minds. And then finally, John closes his letter with a very simple expression of his desire And a greeting from the other church in verses 12 and 13. He says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Beloved, there will always be heresies and doctrinal disputes. There will always be people who will want from the faith or try to derail your faith. And my hope is that we will be people of truth who act in loving ways toward one another and who watch out, who are careful about deceitful doctrine. Let's pray together. God, I do thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you for John and, and the, this letter that he wrote to this individual or this church. Thank you for the things that you called them to go through so that we might learn from them. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be firmly grounded in truth, in the truth of what Jesus Christ did for us. Lord, help us to hold our convictions firmly and yet lovingly show grace to one another. But when it comes to false doctrine, especially doctrine that denies the presence of Jesus Christ, God, help us to to root that out. Help us to defend your word, your truth from the lies of this world. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.